All right, First Chronicles 21 is obviously after First Chronicles 18 to 20. And David, last week, if you remember, conquered all of the promised land. And so in light of that, this is going to make uh, his request in First Chronicles 21 not necessary and actually disobedient. And so uh, what we will... Um, what we'll look at today is written 450 to 500 years after the, these events. So if you were to read Chronicles in the time that Chronicles was written, you would say, how did we ever get to worship? How did we ever build the temple in this location? And how did we, um, how did the hell the temple get established uh, in this spot? And this spot seems to be the same spot where um, Genesis 22 Abraham offers Isaac on the same location. And so Mount Moriah is very important in the Old Testament uh, geography, right next to Jerusalem. And so uh, David, uh, the other parallel passage in 2 Samuel is the last uh, chapter of 2 Samuel, but we have several more chapters to go in 1 Chronicles. And so this isn't how Chronicles ends, but Second Samuel tells us in the parallel passage that um, God wanted to judge the Israelites. A lot of the Israelites, I'm going to assume at least 70,000 Israelites are disobedient to the Lord. You'll see where I get that number in this text. Uh, and God wants to judge them. So he allows Satan. And if you look with me at verse 1 of chapter 21, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David or tempted David to uh, number Israel. And so David does this. So which is correct? And we know the synoptic gospels, the three gospels in the New Testament, give different facets of uh, Jesus' life. Well, Second Samuel and First Chronicles give different facets of this story. And so if David or if God wants to judge Israel and Satan says, hey, can I get at Israel too? <laughs> is God can God allow uh, Satan to tempt David. Uh, God is never behind temptation. We know that from James 1. So God is not, does, doesn't tempt David to disobey him. It's clearly uh, laid at Satan's feet. Satan here is uh, called the accuser. And so uh, Satan uh, stands up against Israel and wants, uh, he always wants people destroyed. <laughs> and so um, he tempts David to number Israel and David gets into this temptation and says to Joab and the commanders of the army, go and number Israel. So we have in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, God says he will not allow us to be tempted above that we are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape so that you may be able to endure it or bear the temptation. So God doesn't, God always sets limits on Satan whenever we see him in Job, to see him again in Zechariah. Uh, three, accusing uh, Joshua, the high priest, uh, during Zechariah's day. So from Job to David to Zechariah, he is the accuser. We know he's the accuser of um, of the church, of the brethren. And he is trying to get uh, David to sin against God by numbering Israel. There were two types of census, two reasons to take a census. One, remember the time of Christ, where Mary and Joseph had to walk to and uh, you probably take a donkey uh, to Bethlehem. It was for the purpose of taxation. The other was for the purpose of fighting or an army. So if you are going to go out into battle, uh, I think Jesus said that you count the costs. Remember, 
uh, in our parable that we're reading in Luke. Uh, Jesus said those uh, things. So the problem is this is right after they conquered all the promised land. There's no more enemies within the promised land for David to fight. So why does he need to number the people? And he is not sending out uh, politicians and the elders of the city to count the people. Who is he sending? Well, let's look at verse two again. So David says to Joab and the commanders of the army. So who do you think, what's the purpose of this count? It's not taxation. It has to be for war. So um, the pride of David is probably provoked and Satan probably comes to David a lot. And we don't know exactly how he tempts him, but probably something along the lines of, hey, you've already conquered the promised land, but you could have a bigger kingdom even. So why don't you go number uh, to make sure that you can expand the kingdom even farther than God promised. So this isn't God's plan. This is against what God wants. And we'll see, you can hold your hand here and go back to Exodus uh, chapter 30, or you can just listen. Uh, Exodus chapter 30, without Exodus 30, uh, the punishment that God's going to um, allow to happen in, in Israel doesn't make sense. But with Exodus 30, just like when Uzzah dies just touching the ark, if they didn't have, you should carry the ark on, on your shoulders with poles. It makes Uzzah's death look um, unjustified. But when you know the, the first five books of the Bible, when you know the Pentateuch, and as a king, he was supposed to write it, there's no excuse for him not to know it and obey it. Uzzah's death was David's fault. And then there were 70 other men who were killed when they looked into the Ark of the Covenant. That was probably on them, and they knew it was holy, and they still tried to look at it. Uh, when it was before it got to uh, Jerusalem. And now David, he has to know Exodus 30, but he's not thinking of it with the temptation that comes. So let's look at Exodus 30, verses 11 to 16. The Lord says to Moses, after giving the Ten Commandments, while they're still around Mount Sinai, he's giving them more laws. When you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them. So when is a ransom given and to whom is a ransom given? When you are, well, you probably think of people getting kidnapped and in order to get money for these people that are kidnapped, uh, the kidnappers say, okay, this much for ransom and then we'll let them go. However, uh, God isn't wrong in requiring a ransom. So instead, we probably just need to look at this as a deserving of death people well it's also in a census you're not trusting in you're not trusting in the lord you're trusting in your numbers if you're taking a census for your army um as you remember uh, first chronicles 18 to 20 every time uh, david goes out to battle and they're trusting in the lord they win it doesn't matter how big doesn't matter how many chariots and how many horsemen doesn't matter how big the army is that they're fighting against. It doesn't really, really matter. We know the story of Gideon and other small armies in the Bible. David uh, against Goliath. The size of the army doesn't matter whenever you're trusting in the Lord. So a census was a lack of trust in the Lord. So God puts, and uh, he doesn't want Israel to count their soldiers. And if they do, then they have to pay for it. And we'll see how much they have to pay. Back in Exodus 30, it says, each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel. So 
think of New Testament denarius or a day's wage, so around $200. So if you were really wealthy and someone gave you a $200 bill, you're like, yeah, I can pay that. But if if you had $200 to pay just for your leaders wanting a census, you would say, ah, no, 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 <laughs> no, we are not. No, don't count us because we're not paying. Okay. Uh, so it seems like Israel's going to go along with this in in um, in First Chronicles, and they may have been ignorant. There's no excuse for David to be ignorant of Exodus 30, but they are. He uh, back in verse 13, each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Tells you how much a shekel is uh, as an offering to the Lord, and everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward. So this is likely for taxation or for fighting, and you wouldn't have a typically younger than 20-year-olds fighting, and this is the army. You'll see, I think it's uh, those numbered 20 and older uh, later. So it was for the purpose of not trusting the Lord and just seeing how big our army is to see if we can conquer more of the land. And if the people go along with this they have to give an offering to the lord in order to go along with this census which is two hundred dollars a person or a man everyone who's counted what are they going to do with the money it's for the lord's offering verse 15 the rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less and the half shekel when you give the lord's offering to make atonement for your lives atonement is covering of your sin or your guilt verse 16 you shall take the atonement money second time we see atonement from the people of Israel, and shall give it to the service of the tent of meeting. Now, remember morning and evening sacrifices. And if you were to look today and see how much a sheep costs, it's roughly $200. So this would enable the priests to go purchase a sacrifice and then offer extra morning and evening sacrifices, the burnt offerings that God required daily. But if you're going to have a census, you're going to have a lot of Sacrifice. Who's going to pay for the sacrifices? Well, the people are going to have to pay for their own uh, sacrifices. Give it to the Lord uh, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. Um, so don't uh, don't take a census. Think twice before you take a census. Is everybody going to be okay with paying $200, even the poor people of the land? And most of the time, we don't have any, I don't think we have any record in the New Old Testament of this actually being carried out because this discouraged censuses for the purpose of, of war. Now let's go back to First Chronicles uh, 21. So the temptation uh, that Satan gives to God's leader is to disobey God. Um, <clears throat> so we're going to look now at verses 2 to 6 for after the temptation... According to 1 Corinthians 10, we're looking for a way of escape. We're looking for a way out of this. Now, remember, chapter 20 was the parallel of David's sin with Bathsheba. We're not told of that sin in 1 Chronicles, but if you think through that story from 2 Samuel 11, what was David's way to escape then? He's up on the roof. He sees Bathsheba. It was a time when kings went out to battle. Oh, and he stayed home. What should he have done? He sees Bathsheba, he says, nope, I'm out of here. <laughs> he gets his armor on, he goes off to battle. And he fights alongside Uriah instead of trying to kill Uriah. And he had a way of escape. He wasn't supposed to be there. And he knew where he was supposed to be, and he was in the wrong place. 
So just like that, God always provides his people a way to escape from their temptation. He never is going to tempt you beyond your ability to say no to it or provide a way of escape. So here's David's way of escaping this uh, disobedience of God going against Exodus 30. So he says to Joab and the commanders of the army, go number Israel from Beersheba in the south to Dan in the north and bring me a report that I may know their number. And Joab says, now what do we know about Joab from 2 Samuel? Good guy or bad guy, usually? Ruthless. <laughs> Ruthless. Yeah. Cruel. Uh, deceitful. Um, yeah. Murderous. So this is what we know to be true of Joab. However, Joab here looks godly, and David looks ungodly. Joab is the one even known for his disobedience, is trying to talk David out of this disobeying God. So Joab does know Exodus 30, because he wouldn't have tried to talk David out unless he knew. But let's see what he says in trying to talk David out of this. David, simple command, all the commanders go number my people. I want to see how many fighting guys I have. Verse 3, but Joab says, may the Lord add to the, his people a hundred times as many as they are. He's trying to just bless David and his army and say, you know what? God can add to, to the number that we count. Are they not, my Lord, the king, all of them, my Lord's servants? He's saying, aren't we all faithful? There's no reason for us to go and see how many there are because they're, they're all faithful to you. We've seen this throughout uh, Chronicles. They're faithful to David. They made him king. They fought for him. And Joab says, so why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? Joab here gives David the way of escape. Okay, so if we wanted to escape this room, there's a door. And someone sitting next to the door and they said, okay, open the door. Let's get out. <laughs> so they got this meeting of commanders and Joab's sitting there with David. And David says, let's do this thing and disobey God. We know Satan's behind it. Um, God's going to use it to judge Israel, but David doesn't have to get into the temptation. Joab says, here's the way of escape. Okay. God's good. We're going to trust in the Lord. All your people are faithful to you. Um, God can add more than what we even count. So it, there's no need to bring guilt on Israel. And I don't know if the commanders agreed with Joab. We're not told, but we, what we are told in verse five, simply uh, verse 4 says, but the king's word prevailed against Joab. He's the king. Joab's just the leader of the army. Joab loses the debate, even though he was right in this instance. So Joab departs. He goes throughout all of Israel with the commanders, Second Samuel 24 says. And it takes them a little while to count all of Israel from the north to the south. And Joab gives the sum of the numbering of the people to David. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword in Israel, that's in the north, and then in the south, the uh, tribe of Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. So who he has to count, they're drawing the sword, which means they're, they're warriors. He's got 1.57 million soldiers at his disposal. That is quite a large army. That might be more than our military has, even though we probably have more people <laughs> They probably had required military service in Israel. If you were able-bodied, you had to fight uh, the king's battles. But still, having this amount of men at your disposal, 
And let's see what verse six is. But he did not, that's Joab, did not include Levi because they were um, excluded from fighting because they were serving the Lord, offering sacrifices. And Benjamin, we're not sure about Benjamin. We see 3,000 from Benjamin earlier. Benjamin was almost wiped out at the end of the book of Judges. And so Benjamin likely, uh, their numbers aren't high yet because they have gone from 600 men, almost eliminated. And at the time of Saul, when they made David king, there were 3,000. So 3,000 is, is not a lot of, of fighting men from Benjamin. So they maybe uh, excluded there or they were less accounted and Joab just was done <laughs> with this uh, guilty task uh, and uh, a sinful task. So he did not number Levi and Benjamin in numbering for the king's command was abhorrent. And we're, we're given the reason why he's, he didn't count them is uh, he hated this. This is Joab hating sin. They're like, whoa, I thought this guy was always bad. He's not always bad. Um, and God can use even known evil men to at times do, do what is right. So the, the theme of this is God's wrath and God's mercy meet. Now verses 7 uh, to 13 is God going to give David a choice. But David, or God was displeased with the thing and he struck Israel. So we don't know how many people are struck at this point. Maybe it's part of the 70,000. But some people are dying and David realizes God's judging us. And David says to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now, please, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. He takes full credit for the iniquity, that's the, the guilt, uh, the foolishness, uh, disobeying God, sinning greatly. His language is, is uh, confessing his sin. And the Lord spoke to Gad, uh, David's seer. A seer is similar to a prophet, um, from what I could do uh, see in, in studying a uh, seer is probably known for his visions, where they get the title seer. There's something visual about uh, how seers uh, get their revelation from God. A prophet is is broader uh, category. And so Gad is David's uh, seer, similar to a prophet. And God talks to Gad and says, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. I don't know if you remember as a kid, if you ever did something really bad and your mom or dad said, all right, I'll let you choose your discipline. <laughs> and they give you three awful choices. And you're like, I want something better. I guess isn't there. No, none of the above. That's not an option. Okay. Here are your three options. God says, and none of them are good. So God says, choose. Uh, thus says the Lord. And uh, Gad says to David uh, in verse 11, that says the Lord, okay, you have, when you see the word Lord over the name for God, uh, God's covenant faithfulness to Israel, and now David's been unfaithful to the Lord and not trusting in the Lord and trying to conquer more than the promised land, trying to disobey Exodus 30, even though he was trying to be talked out of it, he wouldn't be talked out of it. And so the Lord says, okay, choose what you will. Either three years of famine, uh, so they would have a lack of harvest, a lack of rain. A lot of people would die of starvation. Or three months of devastation by your foes, all the nations that they conquered and subdued and were bringing them tribute. Those nations would turn on 
Israelites and have, even though they have 1.5 million men, it doesn't matter. God's going to give them into their hands for three months. And, or you can choose three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land. Think of the death angel that goes through Egypt, who kills the firstborn. That's the that's the picture here. Um, and God says, okay, here's the third option. The angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what I, now here's Gad talking to, to David and say, okay, now decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. He's like, God sent me, the Lord sent me, and I've got to go back and tell him your answer. So let's, that's the three awful choices. And here's David's thought process. And it's good. Verse 13. And David says to Gad, I'm in great distress. There's no good options here. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. Here is a man after God's own heart who has sinned against God again. After Bathsheba and Uriah. And now... Uh, used of Satan to um, to to judge uh, Israel and uh, killing Israelites, and so he's like, okay, uh, I don't want to fall into the hand of man because they are not merciful like God. It's not going to be pleasant uh, for three days, but let us fall into the hand of the Lord. And verse fourteen is the only verse of the actual judgment. The rest of the chapter is going to be talking about God's mercy. Okay, so I'll give you that heads up. The Lord sent a pestilence on the land and 70,000 men of Israel fell. We, we know that this was three days. What is David doing with the elders uh, while the death angel is destroying uh, throughout all of Israel? And then let's also make a point here. If we know from 2 Samuel that Israel was disobedient, who do you think of who was killed in the 70,000? It was the disobedient in Israel. God doesn't just, um, like a cruel dictator, drop atomic bombs on everybody innocent and guilty together. When we see Dathan, Coram, and Abiram, and the earth opens up and swallows just their family and closes back up, God knows who are wicked and who are righteous. He spares the righteous. He judges the wicked. When God wants to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he removes, uh, he removes um, Lot and his family. God knows how to deliver the righteous from destruction. So the, the disobedient that we hear of and, and read of in 2 Samuel 24 are likely the 70,000. So there are 70,000 disobedient, possibly unfaithful to the Lord, uh, dabbling with idolatry, whatever it is that we see in the rest of the, the history books, they were disobedient to God. God wanted them judged. He allowed Satan. God's in control of all this. Uh, David is distressed. He is... Um, crying out to the Lord. We'll see what he's doing here uh, as this is happening. But God doesn't, I I'm. I know, we know God. He doesn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. These 70,000 are, are likely the wicked. All right, verse 15. And so now that that's over, the 70,000. So if you're writing Chronicles and this event happens where you lose 70,000 men in three days, it's like a really bad loss in a battle. Chronicles is thinking, so how did this end? Everybody wants to know how it began. We know how it began. What happened? 70,000 people die. How does it end? Well, the rest of the story is how it ends, and it's fascinating. 
So verse 15, God sent the angel to Jerusalem. So he sent the angel destroying all of Israel, north and south of Jerusalem. And the angel comes to Jerusalem and it's visible. The angel is visible to David uh, and those living in and around Jerusalem. He sends the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. But as he was about to destroy it, we're going to find out the angel's got his sword out, ready to, to kill the people of, of uh, Jerusalem, the city of which David's in there. Um, the Lord saw. The Lord saw? What did he see? He's, he saw enough to know. He sees everything, right? God says, saw, okay, three days is up. These people have been, the wicked have been destroyed in Israel. Uh, David got the point. Don't listen to temptation. Listen, find your way of escape. You don't have to give in to sin. Know my word, obey my word. The Lord sees all of this. And he relents from the calamity. Here is God's mercy. God initiates the mercy. God decided when to start. God clearly tells the angel when to stop. And he relents from the calamity. And he says to the angel who is working destruction, it's enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. Now we know Jebusites inhabited Jerusalem before David conquered them. But this guy likely is a, a sojourner or a um, follower of Jehovah with the Israelites, even though he is a foreigner living among them. We see how he responds to David and how he's ready to give. Uh, he is a, from what we can tell here, a godly man. David lifts his eyes. And now where this threshing floor is right next to uh, Jerusalem, where David's living, they see the angel. Uh, he sees the angel stop. Uh, and he um, lifts his eyes, verse 16, and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven. So he's not like on the earth and he's not all the way too high. You can see he's He's up above the earth, but he's in between heaven and earth. And in his hand, a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. And it may be that wherever the sword was pointing, in front of that sword, people are dying. So the sword is stretched toward Jerusalem. David realizes, okay, we're next. And But he, there's no, the killing has stopped. And David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. So God initiates the mercy and saying it's enough. God's leaders are humbled before him, and not just David, but the elders of the city, the leaders, and they're clothed in sackcloth, which is a sign of mourning. Uh, if you remember uh, the story of Jonah and Nineveh, they all for three days clothed themselves in sackcloth and mourned, and God was merciful to them. And so God's mercy is on display here. Uh, verse 16 continues, the angel standing between heaven and earth, and in his hand the sword drawn stretched out over Jerusalem, and David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces. What they're wearing, what they do, uh, shows a sign of great humility and submission to God. Verse 17, and David said to God, was it not I who gave command to number the people? Is it I who have sinned and done great evil? But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house. And do not let the plague be on your people. So he's humbled and he's saying, hey, destroy me. Don't destroy these people. Um, 
It may seem as you read this story that God's doing something wrong. Why does, and this is what the world asks, why do why does good things happen to, or why, why do bad things happen to good people? Here's how we need to look at this. If the Israelites in numbering in Exodus had to pay a ransom to God, if they had to constantly offer morning and evening sacrifices, you know what they're saying by doing all these sacrifices in the Old Testament? We're guilty. We're guilty. We're guilty. We're thankful that we're even alive, that a holy God would even be our God because we're so guilty. So a better question to ask the world isn't, why does God allow bad things happen to good people? Because what's the Bible say about good people? There's none. So better question, why are bad people still alive? And the answer is all of us are bad. <laughs> why are we still on this earth? Why did God, God should could have and rightfully killed 1.57 million, all of their warriors, but he only kills 70,000. Small fraction of. So we need to ask the right question because if you ask, the why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? You're assuming everybody on earth is good or most people are good. Instead, we need to assume, as scripture tells us, good theology says we're all bad. There's none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. We're all like Adam and Eve in our sin, and we run away from God, and we make excuses. And so, better question, why does God show mercy to bad people? Because he's a merciful God. You have to listen to God. You have to obey God. So David's going to show us what that looks like. Verse 18. Now the angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Don't miss who is commanding who here. Look at verse 18. Who is it that's commanding Gad the seer to say to David? The angel of the Lord. What do we know about the angel of the Lord in this passage? He's the destroyer. So the destroyer stops destroying, and he's the one who's communicating to the prophet, go to David and tell this is what I'm going, this is how you uh, stop this plague. This is how the plague is stopped. Go to up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan. And this angel is in between heaven and earth right next to this threshing floor. A threshing floor would have been a, a patch in the middle of someone's field that was um, kind of like a parking lot that was level and they would bring all of their wheat to the center location and you'll see Boaz and Ruth and they sleep with their wheat but they also um, um, it was a cleared area okay and so uh, verse 19 so David goes up to get at Gad's word uh, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord right away okay all this happens while the angel is there with his sword stretched out toward Jerusalem, David realizes it stops. The angel tells Gad to go tell David this. David gets the word. He's going out. It's it's close by. We'll see how close it is. Um, and then he, he goes out and has this conversation with Ornan, all while the angel's still there, like we could die. Verse 20. Now Ornan was threshing wheat, and he turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. Okay? <laughs> so... They know what's happened. Hey, you remember where you were on 9-11? If you're older than 30 years old, you probably remember that day like no other day in your whole life. <laughs> because that day had an eerie feeling 
after the morning events of 9-11 and 3,000 people in our country died. Now imagine that times, what, 70,000, okay? In a smaller country with less people than 330 million or so that we have, um, less people and 70,000 people die in three days. There is a awe and a fear and a despair, distress on the whole nation during these three days. And so when these four sons of Ornan see the angel coming to them, they're like, we're dead, let's go hide. And they run and hide. This is what you, that's what you do. Every time you see an angel uh, in scripture, everybody's afraid of an angel because of its powerful presence. So Ornan is not hiding. It sounds like his sons are hiding. Verse 21, and David comes to Ornan and Ornan had looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David recognizing him as his king with his face to the ground. And David says, Ornan, give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted from the people. Ornan wants the plague to be averted. He doesn't want him and his uh, boys to die. David realizes we have this opportunity. The angel tells us what to do. We're going to do it. David says, give it to me at full price. I'll pay whatever. This is my fault. And I need to worship the Lord uh, this way. Then Ornan says to David, showing his godliness here, take it and let my Lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. I'm just going to donate it, David. In verse 24, David says uh, to Ornan, this is all happening. The angel still right there with the sword outstretched. Uh, no, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours. So you can't give a sacrifice to God of what costs you nothing. That's very important in worship in the Old Testament. And we apply that in the New Testament. When we come to worship, we give God glory. We give him our voices. We give him our money. We give him our attention. Mm -hmm. We give him our fellowship with other believers. We give him. This is what worship is, is giving what is ours in a sacrificial way to uh, to him and to others. So David understands worship. And uh, and so he says, no, I'm going to pay full price. I cannot worship, offer God um, a burnt offering that costs me nothing. So David paid Ornan 600 shekels of gold. Remember the half shekel was around $200? Yeah. This is $240,000. Okay. So if he wanted to buy a piece of property today in New England with several acres, maybe $240,000 if you want to build a house. Okay. That's a similar price for land. We don't know how much land comes with this threshing floor, but this is right next to Jerusalem uh, where the angel stops. This is the place for the altar. And so verse 26, so David builds an altar there. It's now his land. Uh, to the Lord presents burnt offerings and peace offerings and called to the, on the Lord and the Lord answered him. How do we know, how does David know that the Lord answers him? The Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offerings. So David puts all the altar uh, together and fire comes from heaven. It sounds like Elijah's story, right? And it also happens later whenever they dedicate the temple in Solomon's story. So first time that God sends fire from heaven, accepting the burnt offering and committing then to David that he that the, the killing is, is done. Verse 27, and the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back in his sheath. You can imagine the boys of Ornan and Ornan and David sitting there watching and the angel 
with his sword outstretched all during this conversation. He's like, oh, what's going to happen here? And David builds an altar quickly, and God answers with fire. And when that fire comes and the angel puts his sword back, everybody's like, oh, okay, it's done. No more destruction. Verse 28. At that time, David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. He sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar burnt offering, were at that time in the high place at Gibeon, which is about six miles north of Jerusalem. But David could not go before it to inquire the Lord, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. He feared God. Then David said, here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So David is setting in place, and Chronicles is telling us this is how the temple got to where it's at on this location. Fascinating part about this story is Genesis 22, when Abraham is told to offer Isaac, his son. He is living uh, miles away, takes a three-day journey, and they end up in the same location. Mount Moriah. Okay, so you can look back at Genesis 22 2 and see that this is a location where God supplied, um, where God's wrath and mercy met for Abram, Abraham. This is where the temple is built. Um, when Solomon's going to build the temple, this is how uh, this land rightfully belongs to David and then Solomon uh, to build the temple. And then close to the temple, right outside the city gates another place where God's wrath and mercy meet. Where does God's wrath and mercy most clearly meet of all time? It's at the cross. Jesus is crucified outside the city of Jerusalem and not far from this location. A thousand years after this, a thousand years before this, Abraham's here with Isaac a thousand years after this story is when Jesus is there with his cross. With the mountains of Moriah, um, we see, uh, we can learn a lot about God. God spared Isaac and provided a substitute. With Christ, Christ is the substitute, and he spares all of us guilty sinners. So what a wonderful God to spare us and judge his son. And what a wonderful Savior to willingly take God's wrath and give us his mercy. See, Isaac was a willing participant on Mount Moriah. He didn't run away from his dad, although he's probably faster than him. He willingly was willing to lay down his life. And he's a picture of Christ. Christ willingly, as we saw last Sunday, we'll see more this Sunday, that our wonderful Savior willingly took God's wrath, rightfully to destroy the whole world. We are all under God's judgment. So why is God merciful to, to bad people? That's the question we need to ask ourselves in the world. Not bad things happening to good people because there's not good people. Why does mercy happen? Why does grace happen to bad people? So what is David's response when God's wrath and mercy met? And instead of getting God's wrath, he gets God's mercy. What does he do? He immediately, sacrificially, worshipfully obeys God. So what are we to do? We have been told exactly what to do by our Savior. Follow me. You got to take up your cross daily. 
going to do everything I tell you. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Here's what you need to do. Go make disciples of all nations. So we immediately follow Christ, sacrificially, worshipfully, and whatever he says goes. Hope uh, this story 